Well, if you have a Bible, we'll go to James first this morning. Um, I'm not real excited about doing this today, to be honest with you. And um, we, we're coming we're coming off of <clears throat> three weeks of hell in our family. I guess it's just, everyone's like this now, but um, we just we've had stomach viruses, we've had you know bacterial infections, and and um, I was listening. Uh, to a sermon this morning that talks about the relationship of our bodies and our souls and and how um, how frankly a lot of our um, discouragement and the dark night that can come to our to our spiritual lives can is so tied to our bodies and so our, our fuses have been short in our house I mean it's, it's the, and so I looked at my wife on Monday morning uh, or maybe it was Monday afternoon actually I said guess what I'm doing on Wednesday morning. <laughs> So I'm, I'm going to talk to some parents and families about wisdom and parenting. And there was a, a pregnant pause, and we both just burst out laughing. It's like that joke's on Jeanette this week again. Um, so I, I, I'm just going to reflect with you. I'm going to talk for 30 minutes. It's going to be a bit of a shotgun blast. It's not going to be a rifle shot. I've got several different things I want to talk about. And then I really would like to talk together. In many senses, I'd prefer us all being around the table and me sitting down with you. I think that gives a better feel of what I'm conceiving our time together to be. Um, but uh, but what, first of all, what is wisdom, right? Um, I mean, we can give multiple definitions of this, but there's a sense in which wisdom is a skill and a, and a competence in dealing with the complexities of life, Right? And um, that's a very low-flying definition, and we're going to talk a lot about it this morning. But I'm with Cameron on this. My own sense is, and I'm only somewhere along the way, some of you are, are um, will have other perspectives on this, but my own sense on this is everything really in the Christian life does sort of boil down to wisdom when it comes to the effectiveness of, of living. Um, I mean, think about it. Even... Even, and this is going to sound um, maybe a bit like, um, I don't mean this is in any way morally relative, okay? But even in the black and white aspects of the Bible, right? Even the black and white stuff. Knowing how the black and white stuff works out in the particularity of the situation that you're dealing with is in and of itself an aspect of wisdom that's needed, that, that, that wisdom is needed to know how to execute it in that particular moment. I was on staff at a church, um, for a few years, and I love this church very much. I think very highly of it even to this day. But there was a move among the leadership of the church. Hey, there was a move among of the leadership of the church to write position papers on almost everything. Right. So we're going to have an official church position on divorce and remarriage. We're going to have an official church position on X, Y, Z. And there's a sense in which the goal of these position papers was to help. Uh, ease the adjudication process when these problems came to the life of the church. In other words, here's so-and-so couple, they're having this problem, what's our position paper on that, and let's sort of work it through, and then we'll go on. And and I even remember, and, and I'm being a little bit hyperbolic in the way in which I'm describing the situation, because they were more pastoral than that, but even in those position paper kind of instincts, working it out on the ground um, with particular situations is... A matter of wisdom, and it's a matter of necessary, I think, collective wisdom. And so I've, I've had to have a lot of recalibration in my own thinking 
on most areas of the faith when it comes to, and I don't want to, I don't want to necessarily reduce it to this, but when it comes to moral decision making, when it comes to life decision making, when it comes to the various things that come down the pipeline for us where we have to go, are we going to go right or are we going to go left? Um, and uh, I think about that for most things, and I definitely feel that way about parenting. My wife and I have been talking about this recently. We've actually been talking about it a lot. Um, I mean, whether it's marriage, whether it's parenting, whatever relationship it is, I think there was a point in my life, so I would say my mid-20s, um, when I began to sort of think more theologically about things, when I really did believe that life, if you got the right method and the right theology in place, that 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 your life would kind of go would would level out at thirty thousand feet and you just sort of put it on autopilot and go to the drink cart right I mean in other words I I um we've we've got the marriage thing down we've got had some really bad kinks the first two years got all that sorted out uh, lots of turbulence right the plane was rocking back and forth um, but we've leveled it out a little bit and we're pretty sure we're going to stay with one another at least in the meantime no murder yet um, and we're going to go. But and it's just not that it's never nothing's like that. This just hasn't been that way. For, and I felt very similarly about parenting at one point in time. Parenting for me was you find a particular kind of model, you're a particular kind of dad that relates to a wife in a particular way. You set a sort of loving disciplinary culture of the home, and then you just set that thing on autopilot and you let your kids turn out into these wonderful moral agents, right? And uh, it hasn't happened yet for me, right, in the way in which I'm uh, in, in, the own, in the context of my own home. And so I think it's, it boils down and it's been forced on me, given the exigencies of life, um, that uh, it's, it's about wisdom. It's about skill and competence and reflection in the day-to-day decision processes that come uh, into our lives. And what that, I think, demands, at least it's demands for me, and I find this exhausting. Again, you're, you're catching me at a particular moment. I'm just going to lay it out there. I find it exhausting because I prefer it to be on autopilot. I'm hardwired that way. I would prefer to be a Ray Romano kind of dad, right? Um, I prefer that. I like that that sort of, you know, just don't bother me with all the problems. You, you take care of it. Um, what it demands is constant and consistent reflection and reflection's hard i think and it's increasingly hard given the framework of of our culture um and i won't go on to a rant about our cell phones because i look at mine all the time too right but given uh, the way in which our culture has moved toward immediate information and availability and immediate access to other people we are constantly uh, stimulated in some way, and we're hardwired in that way. It makes reflection very hard. And number two, I think it makes reflection really uncomfortable. Now, the silences and the space for silence and reflection, that's an uncomfortable moment. Because we're used, I think, to the cacophony of voices that come from us to us from every other, every other place. Um, so... That was a rant. Everything I just said was a complete rant. Um, but I'm just saying to you, from the standpoint of my own particular moment right now, um, that I feel the angst of this acutely as um, I deal with my own children. You know, we have four now, um, a 10-year-old, we have an 8-year-old, we have a 5-year-old, um, and then we have an 8-month-old, nine, or 9-month-old, she's somewhere in there. Um, so th- we, we've got all these kids, and... And they're all so different. I'm I'm an only child from an uh, from a home that was basically child centered on me. 
Um, I, I wish that that philosophy hasn't really worked in my marriage very well. I've just got to be honest with you. Um, I, I've told Naomi, I said things would be much better if you just did everything I wanted. We'd be happy, right? Um, but that hasn't happened. Um, you know, so bringing bringing my own sort of limited experience of of life and bringing it to bear on four children, the three of them I know well, at least their personalities now, and they're all so very different. You know, I've got a ten-year-old who's sort of unplugged. He's he's a live wire. I've got an eight-year-old who's melancholic, uh, tends toward melancholy. Um, I, I kid you not, my middle son, this all stays in here, right? My middle son asks regularly for us to pray about his doubts when it comes to his faith. Um, he's eight years old, and he asks these kind of questions that make me want to go take a nap, right? Um, and he's already asking that. So he's either going to be the next Bertrand Russell atheist philosopher, or he's going to be a great theological thinker. I don't, But I don't know which way it's going to go with him. Then I have my five-year-old who, um, true story, last year in Snowpocalypse, I need to be delicate here, um, but, uh, I mean, in front of some people that we didn't even know, they were staying at our house. We asked the little Franklin to, if he wanted to pray for the meal. And out he comes saying, can you, um, Jesus, and he was not as delicate as this, please help me to stop touching my private part so much. <laughs> and I thought, oh, Lord, have mercy. Right? I mean, I didn't even know these people. They're right there. And they're good Presbyterians. Or I'm like, oh, my gosh. Um, you know, so, I mean, we're, we're, I, that's our world. We live into that. And I, and we, I tell my wife and I talk this way. We just have to allow people to come into the chaos of our home because our house is, I mean, I wish it were a smooth sailing ship. It's, it's more like how I hear fighter pilots describe landing, um, um, fighter jets on an aircraft carrier. It's a controlled crash. That's what I feel like is a controlled crash. So that means I need, and my wife needs, and the exhaustion and the vortex and the tornado of our home, we need wisdom in bucketfuls. And these are my three points, and I'll give you my first one right now about wisdom. Number one, we lack it. This is so basic. We don't have it, um, but God gives it. All right, so this is what I want to look at James 1 with you. We lack it, but God gives it. Um, James chapter 1. Consider it pure joy, verse 2, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And let perseverance finish its work so that you might be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, that's rhetorical, I believe, from James. In other words, if any of you, namely all of you, right, lack wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Um, that's a simple directive, I think. And it's one that I... And again, if your story is anything like mine, and I don't want to impose my story on you, I realize we all have different narratives. But I think it's the reality and the crisis of dealing with real relationships, whether it's maritally or with our children, that forces us into a posture of crying out for wisdom. In other words, it's not like we really have to be told too much. You lack wisdom and you need to ask God for it. It's almost like I'm drowning, okay, and I'm crying out for wisdom here. Um, do you know the comedian, is it Jim Gaffigan or 
You know this guy? Oh, he is. I, I just turn him on, wash the dishes, listen to him. He did this thing where he, he introduced himself, and he's, and I think he's Roman Catholic, right? So you can kind of sense this in the of his comedy. And he says, you know what it's, um, he, oh, he said to the audience, uh, my wife and I just had another child, and the audience clapped, you know. And he said, it's our fourth. And then there was no clap. He says, no one ever, la- no one ever claps when I say it's our fourth. They think, ooh, that's weird. And then he says, uh, he says, let me tell you what having a fourth child is like. It's like you're drowning, and you have, a children in each arm, and then someone throws you another one. Right? He says that's what having four children is like. I was like, well, that was a great example, right? So we're drowning, and I think this is what James is talking about here. Um, when you enter into the various and sundry trials and temptations of life, if you lack wisdom in those moments, cry out to God for wisdom, and in His liberality and in His generosity, He freely gives wisdom to those who cry out to Him. Um, the couple things I want to say about this. Number one, isn't it interesting that the context that James is speaking from here in James 1 is a context of suffering? When you come into trials, when you come into temptations, count it all joy. I mean, this is a moment where God is shaping you on the crucible of suffering. I haven't seen any books titled this way, but I think a really a great book title might be something like Parenting, semicolon. An entry into lifelong suffering, right? Um, why? Because it is suffering. I sat with my wife last night on the couch and said, let's talk about this thing. Let's bat this around a little bit. Parenting is suffering. It's an aspect of suffering um, that comes in various waves and moments of life in different ways. I only have a 10-year-old. Well, I got an email from someone recently that was saying, please give some advice on how you would talk to sixth grade parents about X, Y, or Z. And I thought, I don't have any sixth grade kids. I don't, I don't really even know how to speak into that. I've got a 10 year old. That's the max of my experience at this point is a 10 year old. And I don't feel like that's gone all that well, to be honest with you, right? <laughs> um, so that's all, that's all I've got. Um, but here he's talking about the various and sundry trials and temptations that come with being a parent and think about how that relates to all of the various moments of your child's life. I mean, Cameron mentioned some of these. We're back into infant land again. And she's been sick for a while. And I'm thinking, cry it out or not cry it out? I heard you say that. I'm just thinking, I'm a cry it out guy. Put her in there and let her cry it out. My wife, heck no, that's not going to happen. There's not going to be any crying out. I'm like, we're killing ourselves, right? So this is good. that's going on. What's the wisdom in that? Um, what happens when your child that you love so much and you're so excited about and they go off to K4 and they're going into school for the first time and it doesn't go well. And you notice all the other kids seem to be getting along and they're learning well, but why does mine seem different? And then the teacher has that hard conversation with you like, I don't. I think we need to start thinking about some alternative. It's this moment of suffering. It's a crisis. Um, or when you're in the ER room and they slap a surgical sticker on your child and they're about to, and you're like, I just thought it was a stomach bug. What's going on here? Right? I mean, these moments come again and again and again. And you've got the big ones, and then you just got the normal ones. And I tend to think of life not so much from the big moments, but from just to, from the prosaic and the everyday um, the decision-making. So I, I, all of that in its own way is an aspect of suffering. It's an aspect of trial. It's an aspect of our lives being put in the crucible and God doing His 
crucible work on us. And in that, I think he tells us to call out to him for wisdom. Now, this is something interesting about James. And I haven't really given as much reflection to this as I should about, but I do think I'll give more. James doesn't really tell us all that much about what it's going to look like when God answers that. In other words, isn't it hard when you get into these moments, and I don't want to think about this just in the level of decision making, but just in general about wisdom, isn't it hard sometimes to look back and to know, well, you know, I'm not, maybe, I'm not sure if that was the right decision. No soccer this year or yes soccer this year. Or you're going to do this and not this. Or I'm not sure. In other words, there's a sense in which the call here to ask for wisdom is a call to faith. A call to ask God for wisdom. A call to seek out to God for wisdom. A call to recognize that wisdom is not going to be found from an internal look deep within myself, but it's going to be found by casting myself on Him in these moments of trial and temptation, which parenting is from beginning to end, and saying, I need your wisdom in this all the way. It's an aspect of faith, I believe. So that's, that's number one. Uh, number two, and I'm conscious of my time here. Number two. Um, we lack wisdom and older people have it. All right? Um, now, this is all over the Proverbs. Um, where there is, uh, 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 there's safety in a multitude of counselors. Seek out wisdom from the hoary head. Right? That's classic King James Version language. From the white-haired people. Now, okay, this is us talking. You know enough white-haired people who lack wisdom to recognize that's not a general claim about all white-haired people, right? <laughs> but it is a claim, isn't it, about... Um, if, forgive me, this is going to get a little academic. But it's a claim that recognizes something that Aristotle talked about, and that is there are two kinds of wisdom. There's an intellectual wisdom, but there's also a practical wisdom. How do you learn intellectual virtue? Aristotle would say you go to school and you start studying. That's how you get intellectually sharp in the brain. But how do you gain practical virtue? Aristotle's answer to that is you got to live a long time. In other words, there's, and I feel that. I'm 39. Okay, that's my age. Um, you know, I, as a 28 year old, I thought I had oodles of wisdom, right? But there were some experiences that I was about to face in my early 30s and mid-30s that I had no, no idea that that was down the road for me. And you know what? Those have been life-defining. Those, those have shaped who I am. I had no idea about that. And I'm sure, and I hate to think about it, but I know it's true just because I know Job is right. Man is born to trouble like the sparks fly upward. That there's more for me in my 40s and in my 50s and then really until I keel over, Right? Because um, life, we, we, you have to live. And you have to live life for a while to gain a certain aspect of practical wisdom. Um, and that's why I think there, and this is Proverbs shaping on me, I think there's a lot of wisdom for you and for me, wherever you are, to find people that we respect who are down the road and to seek counsel from them. My wife and I did this recently, it was actually last year, a couple that we admire. Um, and we said, listen, <clears throat> we're going to get some wine, some cheese, and some meat. There's not going to be anything fancy. We're going to put our kids down. Can you come over to our house at like 8.30 at night? Right. And they came over and we talked. And, and, and we just peppered them with questions. Right. Because this is, I think, what Cameron was talking about at the beginning. When, when parents go to parenting seminars, right, 
even a little bit of what I'm doing this morning, I realize is this. We're not all that interested in the theoretical aspects of parenting. We can read books on that. We need answers to questions like this. I've never had a two-year-old, and this is happening, and we don't know how to handle it, right? That's what we need answers to, right? Or me in three years. I've got a 13-year-old or a 14-year-old boy now who um, I think he's kind of hot and heavy. with. He's got a real sort of deep affection for a girl, um, and he wants to hang out with her. And they want, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know what to do with that. I'd like to lock him in a room, be preferable, right? But, but someone's been down that road before. Um, so I think there's a, there's an injunction given to us wherever you are on the timeline of your life, um, to find people who are wiser, who are older, who have what Aristotle calls practical wisdom and, and to seek it from them, um, in ways that I think, uh, we, we need because our own experience lacks it. Okay, so that's number two. Let me see what our time is. All right, two, two, three more things. Number three, number three. Um, I, I have this written down as um, <coughs> we can't escape ourselves. We 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 are who we are. I, I you know, gosh, how, how do we? How do I flesh this out? Um, you realize this about yourself, right? I think I'm, I don't like to admit it, but I'm realizing it about myself too. There are certain aspects of who we are and how we're hardwired um, that for all of our trying, we can't escape. I think about this, and it worries me a little bit for one of my sons who tends toward the melancholic side of things. In other words, I won't be surprised if this son of mine in his 20s, begins to struggle with depression, bona fide depression. I, I, I wouldn't, I could see that as a possibility in his future. Um, and, uh, you know, there are certain aspects of our personality and how we're hardwired because we are sinners until Jesus takes us back that we cannot escape. Um, I think Andrew mentioned William Cooper in his sermon um, Sunday morning. Is that right? Um, you know, William Cooper, who wrote these most profound hymns. God moves in mysterious ways his wonders to perform. Behind the frowning providence, there hides a smiling face. I mean, this is wonderful hymns. Oh, for a closer walk with thee. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that makes my old pious side sort of bubble up with all this deep affection. And Cooper was suicidal at times. Wanted to, wanted to kill himself and would journal about not being able to go on. I mean, he was... He was, a, I guess, a manic depressive of some sort um, and could not escape that. And I, I, I feel aspects of my personality in this way. I know my wife feels aspects of her personality acutely in this way. I'm sure maybe you do as well. And that really can lead one to despair. I think it can. It can lead one to real despair, recognizing I can't escape who I am. This is why the whole of this morning's conversation about wisdom in relating one to another, whether it's maritally or with our children, it is driven from beginning to end with the gospel. And by the way, that's not, that's not salt and pepper. In other words, this is an Adventy thing, and Advent's got to talk about the gospel with every sort of thing. It, you have to because you have to. We're compelled to do it. Now, 1 Corinthians 1.30, Jesus has become for us the wisdom of God. Whatever conception of wisdom you're operating with, 
In other words, wisdom is skill in living. That's right, it is. That's what Proverbs talks about. But how do we understand how we get out of the gate in skill in living? Paul is very clear about that. You start with the gospel. You go into the middle gray area with the gospel. You go to the end with the gospel. Because Jesus is your wisdom. He is wisdom for you. So the gospel shapes this whole thing when it comes to dealing with our children. And I think it's the only way that we can find any comfort in this life or the next. I'm using that from the Heidelberg Catechism. Any comfort that we're going to find in this life or the next is going to come from the fact that we know that Jesus has lived for us and he's died for us. And we have to be reminded about that in, let's just put it out there, the continuing failing that we have as parents. Because I think, my wife and I were talking about this last night, I don't know how you feel, and and maybe you're more positive, and if you are, I love that you are, right? But for my wife and for me, it's like, we just feel like parenting is one failure after another. Crapped all over that decision again. You know, raised, yelled at William one more time, just, just yelled, tore him a new one right here, did it again. And I'll tell myself, gentle, lower the voice, a soft answer turns away wrath. I mean, I know all the Bible verses, right? I know the Bible verses. Um, and there I am again, yelling and, and having these out-of-body experiences going, someone's yelling in our house. Oh, it's me, right? It's me. Um, so again and again, I th- my wife and I recognize that, you know, we're driven to the cross as parents um, because I really don't know where else to go. I mean, I think that's the truth. I don't, I don't know where else to go. We have to give our children to the Lord in faith. We have to cry out for wisdom and faith. We have to have the faith and the trust that God is doing His work in our children and it's not ultimately determined. I'm not saying it's not influenced, but it's not ultimately determined by our work. It's His effectual work. It drives us to our knees in a recognition of who we are and what we need. And I don't know anything else in life that's made me feel more vulnerable or more in need of the gospel word than the fact that I look at three boys and a little girl and go, I have no idea what I'm doing. I thought I did at one point, but I certainly don't now. Um, so I, I just, when we end with the gospel or talk about the gospel, that's, that's not a sort of salt and pepper thing. That's, that's at the core of how our identity is shaped in all of these things because it's discouraging. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, and again, you're catching me at a certain moment. Might, might be after a baseball championship, I'm like, parenting is great, right? But right now, it's like, this is discouraging. Okay, it's discouraging at times. And it's a recognition in our discouragement that our fundamental identity as moms and dads is not as a parent. Our fundamental identity is we are people who are brought into union with Jesus. That's who I am. And I need to be reminded again and again by older people and by being in church and by the means of grace that that's who I am. And I function from that perspective, a sinner in need of God's grace, in need of God's wisdom in all of the facets of my life. I'm driven to it again and again and again. I had other things I wanted to say, um, but I'm going to stop. Okay, but what time is it here? Did I? Yeah, let me stop now. Well, let's talk a little bit. I was going to talk a little bit about St. Augustine and his understanding of wisdom um, as uh, properly ordered desires. I do think there's a lot to be talked about here. Um, helping ourselves and our children understand 
Again, Jesus is our wisdom. That wisdom is to be found alone in delighting in God, right? In the enjoyment of God. And helping ourselves and our children recognize that I'm not torn between am I going to enjoy a day at the baseball park? Am I going to enjoy a good meal with family? And am I going to enjoy a Sunday afternoon walk at Railroad Park? Am I going to enjoy those or am I going to love God? Augustine helps us think, see that wisdom is not thinking about these horizontal things in any way distinct from the vertical reality of our love of God. So that when I'm enjoying Railroad Park or I'm enjoying a Barons game or I'm whatever it is you fill in the blank, um, that I'm doing it because I enjoy these things because God's given to them, them to me as uses that drive me toward the ultimate good that is Him. I enjoy a great bottle of wine because I enjoy God and He wants me to enjoy that. I enjoy my going... And you fill it in. I wanted to talk about that, but we won't talk about it. I just didn't talk about it, but we <laughs> And then the other thing I wanted to talk about too is Ecclesiastes and Job. Um, they made it into the Bible for a reason. And I think one of the um, driving reasons why Ecclesiastes and Job are where they are in the Bible, they're in what's called the wisdom literature. Ecclesiastes, Job, um, Proverbs, Song of Solomon's in the wisdom literature as well, Right? Um, why is Ecclesiastes and Job or Ecclesiastes and Job in the wisdom literature? I think because it's, they're there to help us recognize that wisdom, humanly conceived, always has its limits. It always has its limits. There are aspects of life and the complexity of life that go beyond the ability of our human wisdom to be able to sort it out and to make sense. And in all of our efforts to bring wisdom to bear on life for ourselves and for our children, which I think we're called to do and to think about, for all of those efforts, there is an enormous amount of modesty and humility that Job and Ecclesiastes bring to us to say, and in your working up that out, make sure that you recognize that wisdom has its limits and wisdom, your wisdom, is not God. Right. Um, so I, I, I wanted to talk about that too, but we won't. Okay? Questions, thoughts, reflections? Casey? How do I survive 5 p.m. to 9.30 p.m.? Bourbon. I mean, it's just bourbon. I like bourbon. I like making... I went to a psychologist this afternoon for my second visit. <coughs> 5 to 9.30 is the crucible. I don't know how to I answer that. that. I mean, That's what I want. I mean, that's what, yeah. It's an everyday... Yeah. Angst on the way pulling in the driveway. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, that, that's a tough time in our home too. Now, I, my wife stays at home, right? So she's, she's a, um, a, a very, be very careful. It's not that she does not work, right? I mean, but she, her work is different. And she's, and I have to have this, this talk with myself too. We're talking to the guys here for a second, right? But I have to work on this too. Because you've had a long day and then you come home and, you know, it's not leave it to beaver culture anymore. Um, I wish it were. My selfish side wishes it were. I wish the slippers came, the pipe, the newspaper. <laughs> I just think that, just the, the, seeing those Rockwell paintings, they look so beautiful. Like, matter of fact, this is the running joke in our family. This is true. Edit this from, from recording. True. My wife comes from a very patriarchal home. 
I mean, my wife, can, she's number eight of nine kids, right? Um, five brothers. And she will tell you that when they sat around the dinner, they were poor. They grew up in, in genuine poverty. So then when they sat around the table, the boys got the food first. And then the girls got the food. So that sort of worked out. My, my wife says, she says, I was cooking for my brothers at nine and ten. Because they would work on a farm in Wisconsin. I mean, it's, these stories, I mean, they, they, and it's still patriarchal. So whenever I'm with my in-laws, who I love dearly, love my in-laws dearly, but they still are very much in that heavily patriarchal world, um, I'll look at Naomi and I'll say, you know, I wouldn't mind a cup of coffee. <laughs> and, uh, and my mother-in-law, I kid you not, will look at her like, we'll hop to it, right? Get to it. And so it's, now it's a runny joke because I know it's the only time that's going to happen, right, is when, when I'm around my in-laws. I, I would love it if it were that way. There's something very appealing about that. But I have to recognize that when I come home at 5, you know, the um, I didn't clock out. I'm actually clocking in. I'm clocking in. I'm not, I'm not done. Um, and that's hard because it's been a long day. But I have to remind myself it's been a long day for her too, you know. Um, so I, I, I get you. I think those are hard, those are hard times. The worst is when you've had a great day. Yeah, right. <laughs> Any other? Yes, Marilyn. That, um, this is the one, the parent-child relationship is the one that, um, like, theoretically, you cannot walk away from, as opposed to a friendship or a marriage. And, um, and, it's, and it's also the Trinitarian relationship. Like, it's father-son and the Holy Spirit. It wasn't father-brother or... You know, I just think it's interesting. Do you think there's something behind that? Like, perhaps this is the relationship that is the one that will bring us closest to God, or at least down to our knees and, and submit ourselves because we have so little control over our kids and their outcomes. I've not thought about it that way. You know, I, I tend to have some reservations about moving too quickly from a sort of Trinitarian relational dynamic into the human realm, although I know that there's a lot of books that have been written on that. I have my own reservations about that. But I've not thought about it from the other standpoint of the fact that this is conceivably the only relationship that we technically can't get out of. But that's so true. I've never thought of it that way. And you know what makes that, um, and, and again, you know, this is us talking here, what makes that hard sometimes is there's no guarantee that you really kind of like your kids. I, I hope that's okay to say, but right. I mean, and I, I mean, have you, you feel, I feel that way sometimes. Like, gosh, you know what? I've kind of had enough of you a little bit um, right now. And, uh, you know, and, and, but we can't ever get out of that. That's a, that's a good, and in that sense, it's a, that, that is a gospel lens, isn't it? That's a big spotlight on the gospel because God, God won't do that with us. We're in this thing, insolubly with Him. He is for us. No, no condemnation, nothing, no height, no depth, nothing can separate us from His adoption of us as His children. That's. I'm going to think more about that, Marilyn. That's pretty profound. Yeah. Um, oh, I know it. Listen, I know it. I had I had my middle son the other day, and he's talking about these deep feelings that he's having, and and. Uh, and I kid you not, it was on my wife's birthday, February 10th last week, and I, we do this thing on birthdays where we go around the table and we say, let's everyone share one thing that they really love about so-and-so, right? And it was Naomi. So, so let's all go around and say one thing that we love about mommy. So we go around and Franklin's like, she 
plays with me, da da da. I get to Jackson, my middle son. I kid you not. He says, Mommy understands my feelings, unlike you. <laughs> Just like that. I'm like, Well, you've managed Jackson in one fell swoop to lift up your mother and to kick your dad right in the knee. Well done. In one sentence. It's pretty impressive. Um, so, yeah. I mean, yeah. Any other, any other questions, comments, thoughts? I mean, maybe this is cliche-ish, and I, I feel this because I know Gil's in the room, and I don't want to reduce these things to a cliche when it comes to these counseling kind of things. But at least for me, I do have to remind myself regularly to talk to myself and not just listen to myself. Um, and I and that I'm not saying that that's a day by day or even a week, but but every once in a while I, it'll come up. Mark, you're, you've got to talk to yourself rather than listen to yourself. And that's where, in the talking to the self, which is the heralding to the self of the gospel, right? Um, when you herald the gospel to yourself, that heralding in and of itself, though it sounds like it's moving this way, compels you outward. Because faith is, faith is an outward-looking reality. That's why Jesus never talks about our faith I don't think ever from the standpoint of its quantity, um, it's always small for Jesus, mustard seed stuff. It's the object of our faith. So faith by its very nature is an outward moving reality that moves us outside of ourselves to something else. So when I find myself getting overly turned in on the self, that's, that's the conversation internally that has to have the, the heralding of the gospel. And I will say... But there are moments in our lives, and again, I don't know, however your personality is, is hardwired, where we're, we're just unable to do that alone. Just unable. I can't do that. I am locked in. Locked in. Um, I had a conversation with a sweet person after Sunday school a couple weeks ago. Locked in. Just cannot, cannot get out of that. Um, we need each other. Right, I've been in Hebrews at Advent on Sunday mornings, and um, you know Hebrews chapter three is talking about remi- reminding one another about the deposit of our faith, reminding one another, talking about it. And I think, and I want to, you know, I'm not interested in sentimental syrupy Christianity. I actually find it every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. Good for you, not for me, right? <laughs> Um, you want to do bumper sticker Christianity? Have at it, right? Um, I, I'm not interested in I'm not interested in syrupy Christianity, and I'm not interested in stoical Christianity, stiff upper lip Christianity, just face and brave through the next day. I'm not interested in either one of those extremes. I'm not interested in that. Um, but I think for me, in my resistance to syrupiness or certain kind of piety, and in a resistance to even the stoical stuff, that I find myself nervous about talking about God with other people because I don't want it to come across syrupy. I don't want it to come across to whatever. Um, and I you know, this takes wisdom too and how one does that. But I, I think we need to feel much more free talking with one another about Jesus. That's, I mean, what, have we 
have we educated ourselves or spiritualized ourselves into a place where it's no longer cool to talk about Jesus? I mean, I, and I'm not, I'm just talking to myself here. I, it's just a freedom to talk to one another about Jesus in the context of our struggles. I think people find an enormous amount of encouragement in that. I do. I do. Um, and it's also why I need to go to church. <laughs> I need to be in church because I need to be told every Sunday that the real story of the world is not my narrative. It's not me. My narrative is getting wrapped up every Sunday morning in what I hear heralded and what I confess in my sins and what I confess that I believe. Every week, my story is being drawn into his big story rather than his big story is being drawn into mine. And I need that week in and week out in word and sacrament to be drawn into that. So that's, you know, and I, I mean, that's, I struggle. I mean, I, I just put out, I mean, I struggle with that. And that's where the whole Luther repentant life is a life of repentance. We get to get a good, another go of that again and again, again and again and again. Um, and I, I hope you can find that encouraging for whatever thing that goes on in your home. We tried that and we blew it. Well, you know, we'll try again and we'll blow it again. And we'll try that again and then we blew it again. I mean, that, that's, that's the dynamic of our home. I love these homes where everything works out well. I mean, I, I've, see, I've seen them. And I just go, gosh, look at those kids at church. They're so well behaved. and I mean, and they're praying. and I, just, I, I see those people. I love them. I admire them. But, you know, that's just not my home. Right? It's not mine. Yeah, exactly. I found such encouragement. I don't remember. I can't even remember her name. It's one of these double names. Um, you all, some of you will know her. Um, but it was the, um, it was during the, um, uh, um, pledge money stuff that they do with the testimonies on Sunday morning. Mary Beth, was that her name or something? Anyway, she talked about coming to church one day and not realizing until they were in the pew that one of her daughters didn't have a shoe on. She had one shoe off, one shoe on. I'm like, yes. You're my guy. You're my kind of gal right there. I like it. I like it. Anything else? I mean, James, James is moving us toward prayer again and again. You know, coming to the mirror of the Word of God and not walking away from it unaffected. And I think the call to that is a call to prayer. Um, and what is prayer? What's the very nature of what prayer is? It's a giving of the self over to the life of God again and again. And, and I let, I mean, I found hope in this word from a colleague of mine. Um, Graham Coles is his name. Graham said in a certain context, pray the way in which you can, not necessarily the way in which you think you should, right? Um, I mean, for the 24-year-old who's just come into their spiritual existence in a new way, 5.30 in the morning or 6 in the morning with Jesus and a cup of coffee. and I mean, that is great. I had that. I remember in college, I mean, that sounds... In college... I mean, I was up every morning. I had a little place that everyone, all my people knew, this is where General is, don't bother him. Coffee pot, buy, I mean, it was one of the best moments of my life. That doesn't happen anymore, right? I mean, I don't know about your kids. Mine are up. I mean, it's, you, you just, you, in other words, life gets complicated. And so praying on the go 
I mean, if that's how you have to pray right now is on the go, dear God, help us. Pray away, right? I mean, pray the way in which you can. So I, I find that to be helpful. In other words, we tend to think of prayer as this, um, I've got to get into my closet and I've got to be alone. I've got to have my little prayer bench. And if you can do that, that's wonderful. I'm not downplaying any of that. It's wonderful if you can. But if you can't, and all you can do is, dear Jesus, help me while you're slinging the purse over the shoulder to go get one kid to go to another practice and to go to this, pray as you can, you know. And in those prayers, I think the great prayers are the prayers that just completely throw ourselves over to God and say, I'm, I'm in need. I need you. I need you now. Um, I, I think a lot about John 17 in this regard, the high priestly prayer of Jesus. Um, Jesus prays for you. So I don't know how you conceive of prayer, but the way in which I conceive of prayer is that I pray to the Father in Jesus' name by the Spirit. And how I understand that is I offer my human creaturely prayers to God. Jesus receives them and by the Spirit presents them to the Father in the ways in which they should be presented. My prayer life is a mediated prayer life. So what that means is, and I've learned this from Carl Barton, I have found it to be a gospel word for me, right? What that means is, Jesus is going to clean your prayers up anyway, right? So you pray whatever you need to pray. Whatever you want to pray, whatever comes, you just pray it. Um, because I know we've been around people who are like, gosh, I mean, when that person prays, I feel like I've just gone into a thin place um, and the holiness and the way in which they turn phrases. Um, and I could never, I'm not praying. I'm not praying out loud, right? I'll let her go again or him go again. And that's great because I think there's a maturity in prayer as well. I don't want to be exclusive of that. I think that really happens in time. Um, but I also recognize that no matter what moment you are in your spiritual life or where you are, all of your prayers are mediated to the Father by Jesus. All of them. So you know what that means? You get the green light. You can pray whatever you want to pray, whatever you need to pray, whatever comes to mind. You throw yourself on Him. And one of the simple prayers that we pray quite often that I find myself praying in moments of, of just panic or despair or whatever, Jesus, pray for us. The end, right? Pray for us. Jesus, pray for us. Because it's His prayer life which what makes our prayer life effectual, not the other way around, right? I'm going to close in prayer. So, Lord, a lot of air has been expelled today in talking. And James also warns people about that. So, Lord, where I've spoken in error, I pray, Lord, that you'll forgive and, and that you will clarify. But, Lord, more than anything, I pray that you'll drive us in all of our relationships, maritally, parenting and family that you'll drive us to you jesus the source the hope the goal of wisdom itself you are wisdom jesus so we cast ourselves on you in recognition that we need you and that the tasks before us um, shaping our children in the gospel it's just beyond our pay grade lord it's beyond what we're able to do so i pray that you'll give us strength and wisdom and I pray, Lord, that you'll give us hope that you're at work in our hearts and that you're in work in the hearts and the lives of our children as well. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.